0: Welcome to the Self-Made Expert Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Morgan, and I love speaking with people who are cultivating economically valuable expertise outside the world of academia and the licensed professions. Some of these conversations end up on this podcast. You can learn more about my work, helping indie consultants build an expertise moat, at philipmorganconsulting.com. Julian, welcome to the program. Hey, Philip. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming back. You're here um, on a new podcast, but as a second-time guest, and I think that means I managed to not offend you or uh, shoo you away. (laughs) So thanks for coming back, man. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Uh, Some folks will not know who you are, um, and they should feel okay about that. Um, Can you tell them who you are?
1: Yeah. uh, uh, My name is Mike Jillian. I run the Monitoring Weekly newsletter. Um, And I wrote a book for O'Reilly called Practical Monitoring, uh, O'Reilly Media, that is. And through my work with Monitoring Weekly, I'm turning from a journalist into an industry analyst.
0: So let's start with the book because um, like no one sort of is born, I think, and then becomes a seven-year-old and then answers the question what do you want to do when you grow up and and says i want to write a book on monitoring
1: <laughs> so there's it's, it's weird you know i thought more people would want that exact dream <laughs> <laughs> i did. i looked this
0: up 94 percent of uh people do something different than their like
1: first idea of what they're going to do when they're a kid so yeah, yeah. i could see that <laughs> mine, mine was started BMX track. <laughs> you're you're what start a BMX track. That's what I wanted to do. As you
0: a kid. wanted to start a BMX track. That was your first aspiration. That,
1: that was my first aspiration. Uh, writing a book was nowhere, near, nowhere near that. I didn't know that was an option. That is so <laughs> awesome.
0: Um, did you make any headway on the BMX track dream? I
1: or? made exactly none. Okay. Uh, as it turns out by about 12, you kind of lose that dream.
0: Yep. It's, <laughs> I doubt, I mean, there's probably people out there who like maintain that flame their whole life, but
1: man, if they do like more power to them, please go bed- Go build it. Yeah, be great. the world needs more BMX tracks. <laughs> Hell yes. <laughs> so uh, now I
0: know I need to interview someone who built a BMX track and ask them how <laughs> they got there. Um. So you cultivated this expertise that, like, you didn't go to college for right. expertise in monitoring. You know, I it didn't was go a... to
1: college at all. Actually,
0: is that right? Yeah, I, I I have not talked to enough people who have not gone through college. Um. But I continue to believe that it's a less and less relevant career track for. Yep, I agree for folks. So you know, this was a sort of curriculum of your own. Um, mm-hmm. You you got here through your own uh, means. You figured it out as you went. And um, I, I guess it would be good for you to give a little bit of a bio, like how did you get from you know guy who didn't go to college to industry recognized expert on monitoring. What's what's the oh. short
1: version at least? And we'll... Yeah, uh, it's. There, I always think about those graphs where, it, like, everyone assumes that your career trajectory is a straight line, but it's actually like the squiggly and it's a huge mess in the middle and that sort yeah, of stuff. It's like a ball of yarn that it gets got into. Totally, that's that's really how it is to me as yeah. well. Uh, mm-hmm. So I started off my career kind of being I, I found this idea of monitoring very early in my career in like my second job. Mm-hmm. And it all started out with, you know, I have a whole bunch of printers that are spread across a very large campus. It'd be really awesome if I knew when they broke so I didn't have to, like, field all these phone calls saying, hey, this thing is broken. Like, right. I could just proactively do it. Right. And I was so new at new into IT that I didn't even know this was a thing. So I started looking around, and I found this basically monitoring is like an age-old concept. I'm like, holy shit, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I started building it from there. And this is, you know, years and years ago. Like, Can, can you give a rough timeline just so folks have that context? Yeah, this, is, this context? is like, it's probably 15 years ago. Okay. okay. Um, so through that, like over time, I just became better and better at doing monitoring and I was really interested in it. And as it turns out, like every job I've been in, everyone else hates doing monitoring. They hate the entire idea of it. Everyone just thinks it's a huge pain in the ass. And I'm like, I don't get it. Like, I love this stuff. I love the idea of being able to understand what's going on with a system, uh, whether that system is a car or a computer mm-hmm. or like, I don't know, in a pump, like mm-hmm. whatever the system is, I like being able to understand what it's doing. And have you cultivated some kind of theory about why you care about this thing that few others care about? You know, I, I haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it comes down to just how I view the world. Mm-hmm. Like I, I like understanding how things work, right? So, kind uh, of, kind of taking that idea from like, why is this engine behaving the way it is, mm-hmm. and can I understand what it's doing without actually like tearing it apart? Mm-hmm. Because that's a pain in the ass. Yeah. Uh, and s- computers and systems are the same way to me. Like, yeah. what is it doing right now? Why is it doing that thing? But I can't stop the system from running in order mm-hmm. to. Look at it. Mm-hmm. So I have to understand what it's doing while it's running. Right. So this actually comes from an idea called observability, which is a concept from control theory mm-hmm. that uh, my world has kind of added on. Mm-hmm. But I I jump ahead quite a bit. Okay. <laughs> so okay. the um, so how all this kind of as I became better and better at this, and I, I started really enjoying this work. Uh, which kind of goes hand in hand. Like I enjoy it because I'm good at it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the and I started realizing like everyone else kind of hated doing it. Mm-hmm. So uh, over time, I'm taking jobs and eventually I t- start taking jobs that are just monitoring jobs. Like my entire thing is I'm working on monitoring.
0: So we've got about a 15 year timeline here. How how long was it from you know sort of embryonic interest in monitoring to Hired as the monitoring guy for a job.
1: Hmm. Let me. Right, you know, so, ballpark is fine. Yeah. So I, I started my career in 2003. Um, and then in 2000, you know, 2010, no, I'm sorry. 2012. I took my first job doing just monitoring.
0: Okay. Okay. Wonderful. A little bit. So that, uh, so
1: that entire time, of 2003 to 2012, so almost 10 years. Yeah, uh, was me kind of getting better at the fundamentals of systems. Okay. Uh, so the the whole challenge here that a lot of people, uh, that I think a lot of people misunderstand, is monitoring is a subset of uh, systems, of mm-hmm. systems uh, architecture and systems troubleshooting, how mm-hmm. to run systems at scale, and the problem is you can't just go from I don't know anything. To I'm now a monitoring expert. Right, uh, I can't even do that if I'm already good at uh, systems in general. Right, so most of that time was getting really good at uh, being a generalist. Yeah, because in when it comes to tech, you really do have to have a very solid foundation, mm-hmm. and foundations are not a foundation in a specialty; mm-hmm. they're foundations across an entire broad uh, swath of technologies of understanding why things work the way they do yeah that context is is critical isn't it right yeah and without that context i never could have become a specialist yeah
0: yeah was there ever a tension where you were more interested in focusing your time and energy on the monitoring question than your employer was interested in having <laughs> you do that <laughs>
1: yes uh okay. that happened quite often okay uh, The There are many companies that just don't, they don't see the value in it Mm -hmm. uh, because like things are working and we can always fix it when it breaks. Uh, Sometimes there's just no business value to what I do. Right. So like there were a lot of, so the printer thing, the the printer example I had, looking back, zero business value to that. Right. Uh, Like the only person that cared was me. And from my employer's perspective, the it was cheaper for them to just rely on me doing reactive handling than for me to go build a monitoring system.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in that tension because as people who see the technical workings of a system, it is, um, the value can appear to be in the beauty of the solution or the elegance of the solution or right. Like, yep. You were pro I, I'm just imagining you back then. I don't know. You tell me if this is true, but you're like, <laughs> look at how amazing this is. I just, I know even before the users do that, the printer is what, like out of paper or just yeah not
1: like, responding. Right. Like it's out of paper. Uh, the ink's ran right out. It's got a jam. Yeah. Like it's all these standard printer problems. Right. And with this monitoring system I set up from, uh, it's totally janky and is awful, but <laughs> I would know about these things before someone called. Right. So like I could call the user and say, Hey, I see your printer has a problem. Can you do X, Y, and Z? And it'll fix itself. And the user is like, Wow, that's really cool. Thanks for that. Yeah. Like, how'd you know? Uh, but to like that's that's cool. And that's that was a really awesome idea and a really neat thing to set up, but the business value of it just wasn't actually there.
0: Yeah. Right. Like I,
1: I spent more time doing that than I would have saved in a year. Yep.
0: And there's more, you know, there's plenty of people doing, you know, data entry and essentially temp work for that exact reason, right? Exactly. Not everything
1: benefits from being automated. Right. Like sometimes the cheapest and most effective thing is to just stick a human in front of it and say your job when this happens is to push a button. uh, I haven't seen all of the... um,
0: David Lynch's latest TV series, uh, the you know, the Twin Peaks reboot, but there's this, <laughs> yeah. you know, reoccurring scene where there's this um, room with a camera, like trained on this thing and a guy just whose job is just to swap the memory cards. And yeah. like, I think of that situation as the ultimate frustration for a technical person, because
1: right. you're like, wait,
0: you know, put a storage area network in there and, you know,
1: yeah, like we could totally solve this with technology, but uh, we, Technologists are so wrapped up in thinking about that that we don't stop to think, like, should we? Right. Like, is, is there actually value in doing that aside from the pure technical aspect of it? So let's look at the flip side of that in, in the context of your career of getting to this
0: point of being a recognized expert in monitoring. Was there a situation where there was clear business value, but you had to kind of cultivate or figure out
1: the, um, the expertise necessary to achieve it? Yeah, like. So, what does that I,
0: look like when you're in that situation?
1: Yeah, once I started really working on being just monitoring, I took a job working for Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee, mm-hmm. running the knock. Yeah, and doing that job, I realized how in over my head I was. Hmm. Like it was though I had though I had spent nearly a decade building up journalist uh, skills, yeah, and I was already pretty good with monitoring. Uh, it turns out I was kind of, I was still pretty noob as far as uh, being a monitoring specialist. Okay. So, from there, I I now have supercomputers to figure out how to monitor. Like these are hundred hundred million dollar machines, and I don't know how these things work to begin with. So yeah. how do you monitor something you don't understand? Uh, and then I had uh, three other data centers full of hardware. Like this is a hundred thousand different nodes. And I'm like, I don't understand what any of this does. I don't really understand how most of it works. So how am I supposed to build a monitoring platform that works with all of these things and supports a dozen different teams and all of their different use cases? Okay, this is great. If we can camp out here, I don't know if this is like some
0: mega painful part of your life that I'm drilling <laughs> no, into. I hope I, not. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, so how did you break that problem down? That sounds like a formidable challenge.
1: Oh, is yeah, it's really... It's a really fascinating thing. Um, Looking back, I I see all the ways that I could have done better now that I'm much more experienced. Uh, What I did at the time was I approached it from an entirely technical perspective of the monitoring systems we have. We have way too many of them. Mm -hmm. They're giving us uh, sometimes conflicting data, but they're reading the same value. So how are we getting conflicting data? Like That's kind of weird. Uh, we had way too many tools, and everything was completely manual configuration. So the first thing that I did was, how do we make this automatic? Mm-hmm. Uh, like the idea of, if a user comes to me and says, hey, I need you to add this to monitoring, at some point I'm going to forget, mm-hmm. which means now something isn't being monitored and like that's bad. Mm-hmm. So let's make all that automatic. Yeah. So that's one of the first things I did was, let's make the configuration and all the setup completely automatic, completely mm-hmm. automated. So I don't have to ever worry about it. You mean like and, a self-service thing? Someone can say, yeah, hey uh, start monitoring so,
0: this IP address or whatever.
1: Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. very much like that. We yeah. had this. We had a central, um, the central piece of software that tracked everything that was on the network.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I worked with the um, with the person who wrote this application and managed the database of it to add more data to it mm-hmm. and to change the way certain fields were displayed mm. as well as to giving me a way to automatically pull the data out. Okay. So using this information that was already there, just not exposed in a useful way, I was able to turn it into something that I could use to automatically con- configure my systems. Okay. So then I could go back to the user and say, hey, if you want something monitored, while you're setting it up in this central system, just click the button that says monitor this. Okay. And like it'll just work. And like, oh, that's awesome. So why did you pick that sort of um, subsidiary problem to begin with? Because a lot of my work was what we what we call toil in my industry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like it's it's stuff that is it has to be done. Yeah, uh, you can't av- you can't really avoid it per se. Yeah. Like it, it's work that has to be done, but um, it's not useful work. Right. So things like uh, go add this to a spreadsheet, mm-hmm. like that's terrible work. And as someone who is a specialist and like a highly paid engineer, uh, that's that's work you don't want an engineer doing. Right. You want to decrease the toil as much as possible because. Like, one, it's expensive having to do it, mm-hmm. and two, it has a mental overhead as well. Yeah. So the more toil I'm doing, the less brainpower I have left for everything else. Right. So my first stop was, let's get rid of the toil. In retrospect, would you have picked that as the starting point?
0: Absolutely not. Why like not? Like, that was the worst starting point. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> because it was, like,
1: your personal... Um you know, kind of like emotional reaction or like, I don't know. You tell me why. (laughs) Yeah. So the, the reason I wouldn't have is I would have actually started with uh, talking to all the different stakeholders I had and understanding what they really cared about. Okay. Why didn't you do that instead? Because I didn't know that was valuable. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So one of the most interesting things, and this is kind of a side note that I think you'll love. Yeah. As, as I have gotten better and better and better at what I do, Uh, my skills in monitoring haven't actually improved that much in the past few years. Mm -hmm. My skill in talking about it and my skill in uh, understanding what people want and how monitoring can solve their problems has dramatically improved. Isn't that interesting? Um, Right.
0: If I can press you a little bit more on that, would there be value in having deeper skills or is it more a question of like how those skills and
1: the other stuff work as a system to help you do whatever it is you're trying to do? I think in some cases, like there are certain aspects of monitoring that I'm not very good at. Uh So, so improving my ability in those areas would be useful, Okay. but improving my ability to, um, to get people on board with an idea, to convince Mm -hmm. them of going in a direction Mm -hmm. or understanding uh, pains and, the different solutions I can provide, that's way more valuable. Like, mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at that, and there's still so much more room to be even better. Yeah, right. And being even better at that is getting better at the technical aspect. There's a limited market for the people I can help with that. But getting better at the people aspect, the market is essentially unlimited. Like, there's no cap on the amount of people I can help.
0: So, what has if, if, it's probably not just one thing, but what has been um, most helpful in the communicate? I'm going to call it communication. You know, mm-hmm. selling people on an idea, getting people on board. There's probably a better word for it, but let's just call it communication. Like, yeah. what has helped make you better at that?
1: Uh, empathy, like okay, e- empathy is probably the number one thing. Of for those that aren't that don't know what I'm talking about, there. there's uh, – empathy is the Understanding how another person feels, and being kind of being okay with that, like Mm -hmm. under understanding why you feel a certain way, is empathizing with the user, Mm -hmm. or is empathizing with a customer, or empathizing with your best friend when they're hurt. Mm -hmm. Like there's empathy has really made me better at this, and the value of that is that people feel heard. Mm -hmm. If I come to if I go into a meeting with a group of people and. I don't understand what what all the different viewpoints are and the perspectives and uh, what people think about a topic. And then I try to pitch them on my idea, like it's going to go very poorly. And often what, when I go into a room with the, with the clients, there will be four or five people in a room all with different opinions. Mm-hmm. And some of them won't actually say what their opinions are. So for example, there might be a very high ranking VP and an engineer in the room, mm-hmm. but the engineer, because this high ranking VP may not actually say what they truly are concerned about. And the VP will be saying something completely uh, completely different. And trying to answer both of those concerns at the same time is really hard. Yeah. So if I'm not paying attention to that, then yeah. I, I have a huge issue. Do you think
0: your position as an outsider in that kind of interaction make you better able to resolve what could be a sort of, um,
1: standoff. It absolutely does. Um, I read a book a while back by Patrick Lincioni called getting naked.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: just a fantastic book title, <laughs> but it's about how his company, the table group does consulting. Yeah. And it's, it's like a, it's like a meta book. It's a, it's, <laughs> it's a, par- a it's a parable. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a parable, but it is it is a book his consulting group wrote about consulting. Like, right, that's so beautifully meta. Yeah, and uh, and even the parable itself is about a consulting engagement. So yeah. you know, uh, but one of the things they talk about is uh, don't be afraid to charge into the the hard conversation. Right. So they one of the things they kind of taught in the book is if you run into a hard problem where like if you run into an uncomfortable situation where someone is behaving poorly in a room that is your client, you should stop and call it out. Mm-hmm. And you can do that nicely. You don't have to be a jerk about it, Yeah. but you should call it out because that's in the client's best interest. So I've started doing that as well, where if I'm in a an awkward situation, I will just stop and say, all right, this is actually a really awkward situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should talk about this. Mm-hmm. And like, it kind of makes everyone really awkward for a few minutes and they realize, oh wait, that's actually really awesome. So yeah. in those situations where I may have a, uh, like two managers who completely disagree on a topic or giving conflicting information, yeah, then I'll get them both in a room and say, all right, you're both telling me different things. Let's duke it out. Yeah. Like, let's figure out what you really believe and why you're giving conflicting information on this. Yeah. And in a large enterprise, That is the most uncomfortable thing that will ever happen. (laughs) Like no one does this. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like they they don't even do it themselves. So for someone to get them in a room and say, all right, I'm going to force you to talk about the thing you're most uncomfortable about because it's the right thing for the company and it's why you hired me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: As an FTE, I could have never done that. I would have been fired. Right. As a consultant, that's why they pay me.
0: Right. It's, it's like a super oversimplified way to think about things. But if you were to say some percentage of the value that you create through that kind of stuff, um, it's not the raw technical skill. It's the, I can, you know, break through political deadlocks or I can, you know, help create a solution because of, you know, my communication skills, right? What what percentage of the value comes from that? Would you say?
1: Yeah, I would say that most of the value, like easily 70 80% yeah. is actually coming from my communication abilities, mm. um, like my ability to do public speaking, my ability to be, uh, to be presentable in front of a group of executives. Uh, my credibility as a person is like all of that is incredibly valuable and I think is the majority of why I'm successful or what leads to my success. My technical abilities, like having written a book, uh, Mm -hmm. doing all these, having this uh, long career, doing the work, like that's almost table stakes. Yeah. Like it's, it's really useful to have, and I couldn't be where I am without it, but those things are not what make me successful.
0: For how long were you bad at the communication stuff and aware that you were not as good at it as you could be? But you still, you see what I'm saying? Like, for how long were you aware that you were kind of sucking at it compared to where you would like to be? Um, How long did you endure that discomfort of being bad at something that you know was valuable and important? Man, I think we're going to need a chart for this one. (laughs) Um, More than a week, I'm guessing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I I will answer that question by answering a larger question first. uh, Because I think the context is interesting. So my career is about fifteen years long, started mm-hmm. in two thousand three. Yeah, uh, from 'o three to about twenty twelve, when I started working at Oak Ridge, uh, I was com- I was both good at technical and bad at communication and bad at personal skills or mm-hmm. what I would actually just call human skills. Okay, uh, and I didn't know that I was bad at human skills. Right, you were. So, uh, there's some word for that, probably like you were, you know. Uh, unknowing, it's, it's the Dunning Kruger thing. <laughs> you didn't know right. how bad you were. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know how bad I was. Okay. Um, so, starting at about that time, I, I started, I realized pretty quickly that I was, uh, once I got to a bridge, that that I, I wasn't very good at this communication. And it took me getting into these really large, uncomfortable settings and having mentors who were able to point it out to me in a loving way before I realized that I had these problems. So, from but uh, so starting in 2012, I started to work on it, but I was really bad at it. In 2014, I took a job in California, moved out to California, took a job with Taos Consulting,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that was the first time that I was 100% client facing all the time. Okay. And that's when I that's the time where I was I knew that I was not great at being. That my communication, but I was getting better. Mm-hmm. So, like, that was uh, me focusing on improving.
0: Yeah. I, I just found this. It's So it's four stages of competence. Fo- the folks at home are like, Philip, how, how could you not have known this? <laughs> Unconscious incompetence moves to conscious incompetence. So it sounds like you were at, at uh, was it Taos Consulting? It's somewhere yep. maybe at the top end of that conscious incompetence point.
1: Right, like I was... I was improving, but I wasn't great, but I I knew that I knew those things. Right.
0: And then it flips, you move to conscious competence and then you move to unconscious competence where you're just like, you know, Michael Jordan, who's probably not thinking
1: about every, or, you know, back in the day, not thinking about every. I'm I'm most definitely not at that top one yet. Right. Uh, And I've probably got another 10 years before I'll be there.
0: Sure. Yeah. And and it's worth it, right? Because you're, you're
1: saying this is where the lion's
0: share of the value you create comes from is these little, um, you know, sort of master strokes
1: of uh, mm-hmm. mental muscle memory about how you communicate and how you get things done. Yeah, absolutely. They, they're the hardest things to learn and to be good at. Mm. They require a lifetime of practice, mm-hmm. but they're by far the most valuable things that you could possibly be doing. So let's switch a little bit to talk about
0: how the book came to be, All right. the O'Reilly book. So O'Reilly is, um, maybe there are folks who are not in the tech world listening, one of the most respected publishers in the world of uh, technology and software, I think. Is that fair to say? Um, I
1: caught you as you were taking a sip of <laughs> coffee or something, Mike, <laughs> but is that fair I, to say they're they're no, pretty they, close they to the top of the heap? They absolutely are. Yeah. Uh, they are the top of the heap when it comes to the technical yeah. uh, technical writing world. Yeah. Uh, when I, in fact, when I started looking at writing a book, uh, one of my first questions was, Who do I publish with? Right. I didn't even, the idea of self publishing, it was there, but I wasn't really thinking about it uh, at first. Okay. Um, so I started looking around for who do I publish with? And I very quickly realized that uh, in terms of impact and in terms of credibility, which is why I wrote the book, mm-hmm. um, it was O'Reilly or bust. Okay. Like I either go with O'Reilly or I self-publish and self-publish to me due to what I'm writing about and the quirks of my world, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be taken as seriously. I see. But all the other publishers just didn't have the impact and credibility that O'Reilly did. Right. Right. So this was,
0: it sounds like from the early days for you, this was, this is going to be a thing that
1: transforms my career. Is that how you were thinking about uh, it, writing a book? It wasn't how I was thinking about it. Oh. Uh, yeah, like it's, I when I, I will tell you how I decided to write a book. Okay, uh, it has long since been on my list of things to do, uh-huh. but it wasn't a technical book. Okay, like I, I've always wanted to write a nonfiction book, but I didn't really know what. Okay, um, so uh, some years ago, I guess um, as well as shortly after I joined TAO, so this but in twenty fifteen, uh, I started thinking about I I want. I'm kind of bored. Like I, I want a challenge. I don't have anything long-term I'm working on. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: when you're working as a, a staff consultant, you're not building a business. You're just helping a bunch of companies do whatever it is that yeah, they do. Right. So my the projects are by their nature short-term and have no lasting impact on me, though they have lasting impact on the clients. What is long-term for you? Long-term for me, I was thinking... Um, so in this situation, I was thinking long-term of how long something would take right Uh, so i was thinking at least a year okay got it so like i i had a bunch of stuff that was on the order of like days and weeks like projects i was doing myself um i'm sorry to interrupt can i ask if your concept of long
0: term has changed over time
1: yeah i think about my long term is now like three five years okay um And it's actually really hard for me to think about long term like that now, like Mm. though that's how I define it. Mm -hmm. um, My industry moves so fast and I don't really, it's hard for, because I'm still building my company. Yeah, uh, It's hard for me to think, what does five years look like? Okay, Uh, So I'm still working on a like one to two year intervals. Got it. Uh, So I don't actually have any long term plans now by that definition. Okay. That's fine. I'm just always curious about like what long-term
0: means to different people because I think it's a very influential but subtle sort of oh, way I agree.
1: of seeing the world. So back to the book. You wanted a long-term yeah. challenge. So I wanted a long-term challenge, and uh, it came down to, well, I could write a SaaS application because that's what we do in the Bay Area. Yeah. <laughs> um, or I could – and my roommate, like I was talking with him at, at the same time, he's like, why don't you write that book you've been talking about? Okay. But I'm like, oh, I guess I could write a book. Uh-huh. And the next question is like, well, what should I write a book on? Yeah. Uh, and that kind of stuck in the back of my head for months. Yeah. And I started to notice uh, the idea how I came to write about monitoring was I started carrying around a very tiny uh, field notes notebook. Mm-hmm. And every time someone asked me a question that was interesting to me and like I had a lot to say on it, I would just write down what we were talking about. Oh, that's great. What a great little simple thing to do. Right. Like it's so cool because a lot of people forget the things they're passionate about Mm -hmm. Uh, because they're passionate about it. They think about it all day, but it's, it's so unconscious to them. Yeah. It's like a fish and water, right? Right. Exactly. So I knew that. So I decided to start taking notes about the things that I was passionate about, but you can't just sit down and say, well, what am I passionate about? And like make a list. Right. Because most people are really bad at that too. Yeah. So, for me, a sign of passion is what do you get excited talking about? Okay. Uh, so, I started making notes, and after a while, I realized that it was monitoring. Yeah. Uh, I would be at a bar with someone, and a friend would introduce me to someone new It's like, Hey, this is Mike. He's really awesome at monitoring. Okay. And what were maybe the
0: uh, sort of just below that on the list, the, the things that ultimately is not what the book was about?
1: Um, there was a lot of stuff in there about uh, infrastructure automation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like it's it's a core aspect of what I do. Yeah. Uh, so I considered writing something about that. Yeah. Um, and there was a uh, there was another book. I I forget the title. Oh no! The title was called "Go Be Awesome." Uh, shamelessly stolen from a blog post by Cal Newport okay. that he wrote many 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 years ago. Okay. And the uh, the idea behind it was. Um, it's basically a, a life coaching self-help book. Uh, <laughs> interesting. Like I, I would really like to write that book because the yeah. the title's so great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like I haven't done at the time, I hadn't done anything awesome. I hadn't done anything that was interesting. I had no <laughs> advice to give on how to lead a amazing life. So yeah. like, I can't write a book on that. Gotcha. Now, of course that doesn't stop many people from doing it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But like, that's not me. Okay. Uh, so there were a whole lot of really bad ideas. There were a whole lot of like just things that were somewhat interesting, like, Hey, let's write about deployment methodologies. Right. Like, uh, sounds like a really long blog post, like not a book. Yeah. So with monitoring, as people were asking me about this uh, and I was be asking questions, I realized that all my answers were kind of the same. Okay. And, but it, all the questions that people were asking me were also the same. It was mm-hmm. always like, uh, what monitoring tools should I use? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have this problem. How should I solve it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And everyone kind of expected custom answers, mm-hmm. like thinking their situation is in, uh, entirely unique. Right. Well, they weren't. They're pretty much all the same. So after a while, I decided, ah, maybe that's what I should write about. So I started outlining, like okay. just basic outline. I'm like, yeah. ah, yes, this is it. Like mm-hmm. this makes me excited. I have a lot to say on the topic. So that's the direction I started going. Great. So what happened next? So what happened next is I needed to find, I needed to get inroads at O'Reilly. Um, so I made friends with, one, with someone in their uh, old community team before you know, they let them all go. Yeah. And he introduced me to, I pitched him the idea. And yeah. it, it's just, he and I over beers in Portland. I'm like, Hey, I, I want to write a book yeah. uh, for O'Reilly. Here's the idea. He says, wow, that's an amazing idea. Hmm. Let me introduce you to the editor. Okay. So I got an introduction to the acquisitions editor over email. He asked me the same pitch. Mm-hmm. He came back, uh, I guess a few weeks later and says, Hey, executive management loves the idea. Hmm. We want to move forward. Can you write a, a proper proposal? Yeah, and sent me a document and like a template type type of thing. Yeah, so it was a template, Mm -hmm. and what's interesting about this template is that the so it ended up being entirely about twenty pages long, uh, ten of which were my outline. Mm -hmm. The rest of it was questions I was answering from the from for them that were entirely marketing related. Yeah. Was that things a wake like, up call for you? <laughs> it was. Like I didn't expect that. Like wait, I thought they figured all this out, <laughs> right? Like it was very much a wake up call. Um, hmm. So is things like what other books are on the market that uh, compete with yours, right? And I'm like, well, I know them because I've read them all. Yeah. Uh, so that was pretty easy to list. Yeah. But then it was things like why should your book exist? Like why should why does this market need a new Book about this topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do the other books fall down? Right. And one of the most interesting ones was they have a book about monitoring. It came out uh, in 2011.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm writing my book only a few years after that one, mm-hmm. and I think it missed the mark on several places. But mm-hmm. now I have to write in my proposal why another book they published recently right. isn't good enough. Right. And I'm yeah. like, that's that's really hard because you can't upset the editor. You can't like totally shit on everything they did. Yeah. Uh, and especially upset the author because you know, like that's just bad in every other way. Yeah. yeah. So how do you say that I want to write a better book than the one you've already published. And by the way, the one you just published is like, it's still new. It's still fresh. It's still selling. Sounds like that gave you an opportunity to cultivate some of those communication skills. <laughs> right. <They> absolutely. <laughs> did. So, uh, it took me about six weeks to write that proposal. Okay. Um,
0: So for folks who've never seen a a book proposal,
1: uh, like how detailed is the outline? So my outline was, it was 10 pages long. Mm -hmm. Um, It should hit all of the high level points of what you want to make in a chapter. Mm -hmm. Uh, So at a, a table of context, a table of contents is not enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, The high level headings inside each chapter is still not enough. Right. It should actually go into like what are the subheadings inside each chapter. So what mm-hmm. are the main points that you're making throughout every single chapter?
0: So just kind of put this in HTML terminology. It's it's not H1 level. <laughs> you're we're down yeah, to like we're, H3. We're,
1: yeah, we're talking like H3 H4. Yeah, great. So is uh, even by the end of it, by the end of me writing the book, uh, my outline ended up being something like 50 pages long, hmm. and the book was 150. So yeah. <laughs> So, um, so there's that. How much research did you have to do as you were
0: developing the outline?
1: Quite a bit. Okay. Um, so, a, a lot of the stuff that I wanted to talk about, I wasn't super familiar with. Mm-hmm. So, I was learning some minutia as I went along. Yeah. Uh, and there were certain chapters that I knew I wanted to cover something for completion's sake, but I wasn't very good with the in, like the broad area. So mm-hmm. for example, I want to talk about security monitoring, okay. but I didn't, I don't know I, at the time, didn't know security monitoring very well at all. Like mm-hmm. I didn't, really, I don't have a background in security. So I had to go do a bunch of research to understand what should I discuss and what have people not been discussing?
0: So emotionally, what are you feeling as you are like, okay, the book needs to have this, but I'm
1: not currently an expert in that. <laughs> Is there, a little bit of drowning? Yeah. What does that feel like? Uh, it is one of those like it's a little bit of a sinking feeling. Like mm-hmm. after a while, you you're looking at it and going, "Well, I I want to talk about this, and, mm-hmm. but I don't know it." Uh, but I now have a a contract, and like I have to talk about it. There's there's no avoiding it anymore. Okay, so uh, I imagine to a certain extent, the contract is incentive to keep going. But yes, so in the, in the proposal phase, when I I wrote it down, there was. There were things that I wanted to talk about and I Mm -hmm. knew I wanted to talk about them, but I didn't know them. Mm -hmm. So I would just like, I basically, I I bullshitted a bit. Like (laughs) that's really what it comes down to. Uh Uh Like I knew the topics. I just didn't know what they meant. I didn't know how to talk about them, but I knew they would be interesting to people.
0: Okay. So early on, you're like, um, you're BSing a little bit. You're saying this is going to be great. Just trust me. (laughs) Right. And then you're you're into it, and there's a little bit of a like, oh my gosh, I'm a little I'm in over my head in this mm-hmm. little part of the book. What keeps you going through that and gets you to the other side, or what did actually in this case?
1: Uh, you know, I started reading um, books about writing from writers. I oh, like
0: so even even Pressfield helped you
1: out a little bit. Yeah, man, Press <laughs> Pressfield helped me so much, yeah. uh, and Lamott Bird by Bird really mm. helped. Um, Stephen King's on writing, oh, it so, good. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah, uh, so good. I I am such a huge fan of Pressfield, mm-hmm. and um, Pressfield's his book is uh, The War on the Art, The War of Art, the War of That's Art, and then there's another one. Um, Tur- turning Pro is his other one. Okay, well, um, I mean, there's more. Like, he's yeah, written I mean, a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's written a lot of stuff, uh, and he's one of those people who writes. He wrote these books, but he didn't want to write them. Mm. Uh, he wrote them because people kept pressuring him to write the war of Art, mm-hmm. um, not because he was interested in doing it. Do the, the work.
0: That's the other one I'm trying to
1: think of, which yeah, is a so bit of a that, sort of a subset of just about right. that resistance. So he's actually a fiction author mm-hmm. and writes amazing uh, books there. And like, that's his thing. Mm-hmm. So writing this book about how to be a writer, like he was pretty upfront that this is not really what I want to be doing, but it has to be written. <laughs> Someone, someone's got to do it. Yeah. Right. Like someone's got to do it. It has to be done. Yeah. So those really helped me quite a bit of, if you want to write a, if you are writing, you're writing, writing is your job. You're a professional act like a professional. Okay. So it was professionals have a schedule professionals. Mm -hmm. When they sit down to work, they're at work Mm -hmm. and when I first started writing the book, it was it was kind of haphazard. I would write mm. when I felt like it. Okay. Then I realized that weeks were going by without writing at all. Okay. So towards the end of the book, when I started really getting into press field, I'm like, okay, this this has to stop. I, I have to actually be serious about this. Yeah. Like, I'm doing something as a professional. I want to think of myself as a pro. I need to act like that. So I set a schedule of uh, 6 a.m. to, I think, 10 a.m. I would write. And I did this every single day for weeks and it was absolutely awful, but it got easier as I went on.
0: Yeah. It's, it's brutal, isn't it? Do you, (laughs) did you find doing it daily instead of like, well, I'll do it Monday, Wednesday,
1: Friday or some more broken up schedule. Was that
0: important to you?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Writing more often Mm -hmm. was significantly easier than writing less often. Okay. Like originally I was trying to write every Saturday. Okay. And, um, Like you you think, oh, like four or five hours once a week, like that's plenty of time, Uh, but it really isn't. Yeah. And
0: you also, if I can jump in, you also think you're going to be chomping at the bit when that writing session once a week arrives. But you so aren't. (laughs) you (laughs) so are not. There's, it's like, you know, it's like trying to compete in the Olympics after, you know, a year of off from training or something. It just would not be a good good result
1: yeah no absolutely um so writing writing daily was so much better than uh trying to write less often okay okay so you you got disciplined is how you got through it if, if we yeah can like we you, boil it down yeah, to you, one thing you you get disciplined there's a um there's a quote from an author i love i forget who said it but a uh an a journalist asked the guy uh, do you write only when inspiration strikes? Yeah. He says, yes, of course. Luckily for me, inspiration strikes at 9am every Monday through Friday.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a variation of that. Maybe same source, different uh, casting of it, but it's, you know, the inspiration shows up after you're doing the work, not before you start. Right. <laughs> it's this exact same idea. Yep. Um, okay. Let me see here. I'm struggling to find my uh, notes. So, uh, we've got a little bit of time left, and I want to make sure that we touch on something else that you've done, which is also, I think, a wonderfully audacious thing, which is a change in your positioning. I'm trying to set you up to say what it is, but not give away the punchline. (laughs) So, can
1: we talk about that a little bit? We can talk about that. Okay. So, so through this whole thing of running Monitoring Weekly, it's just an email newsletter, and I basically scour the internet looking for articles and uh, curate a newsletter every week. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing it for uh, almost two years. Okay, uh, And it's been really good. And what I noticed, after and through that, my consulting has always been technical consulting. Right. I will help companies uh, improve their monitoring, improve performance of applications, understand wh- how their performance is, like what's going on with it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and the thing that I've been kind of Ignoring for this entirety of my consulting and running monitoring weekly, has been that I get a lot of uh, monitoring vendors, of which there are a lot, are also reading the newsletter and get tremendous value from it, and they say so, and they're all the time coming to me saying, "Hey, can you? We want to pick your brain about where the market is going. What are people interested in? Uh, what kind of articles should we write for our blog? How do we get our content in the newsletter? Like, is all these kind of." marketing and product related questions. And I I've always given it away, given all that away for free over coffee. So let me just stop you real quick. So for folks who haven't heard
0: my previous interview with you on the consulting pipeline podcast, this is you know, this newsletter that you cooked up all by yourself. No one asked you to do it. <laughs> no and one asked me to do it. And now it's this magnet for these weird unexpected opportunities, right? Right. Um, and when you say there's a lot of monitoring vendors, would you say
1: a hundred, uh, 500? So Just- I have, I have a list now. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> so what are we talking? All so, so the list is, is so far 164 different companies.
0: Okay. Worldwide. Got it. Great. Okay. So, uh, from the marketing side of these companies, you're, you're getting approached with stuff in there and you were like, well, meet me for coffee and, um, and I'll, I'll tell you what I think. Right.
1: Yeah, basically. Okay. Um, A lot of them I do just phone calls or mm-hmm. uh, video calls, mm-hmm. but essentially I'm giving away everything I know for half an hour to an hour mm-hmm. and they're happy. They're like everyone is absolutely thrilled with everything I'm saying. Okay. I've seen companies change their marketing, change like strategy, uh, change their product as a result of these. Oh, wow. That's got to be a trip. Right. Like it's, it's kind of weird. Like, Hey, wait a minute. Like you, you took what I said and did something with it. <laughs> That's, I mean, that's real validation that there's right. something there. So after a while, I, I started realizing earlier this year, I was talking with a company and they said, hey, um, so how else can you help us aside from us just sponsoring your newsletter? Okay. I'm like, oh, well, I have a list of things and I, I run through them. You the guys says, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, that's what we pay our market analysts for. Are you sure you're not an an analyst? I mean, was that like kind of, pretty verbatim what they said yeah like exactly what they said <laughs> like so that, that was verbatim okay and i'm like that's that's interesting you say that uh i don't actually know what an analyst does okay. so like we stopped talking about how i can help them and start talking about what an analyst does okay which is a weird situation because like now i'm no longer selling and i have someone who wants to buy something from me but like they're teaching me yeah, yeah. right they're like saying you're a
0: ceo and since you don't know what a ceo does uh let me play it out for you it's like almost that weird that 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 yeah. would be happening that way okay right.
1: it was really awkward yeah. <laughs> um, so like he, he tells me what what an analyst does yeah I'm like, oh my god that's that's really interesting um let me let me get back to you <laughs> okay and i spend the next couple of weeks reaching out to my network and saying who knows and uh ex-industry analyst. Okay. I want to talk to them. Okay. So I interviewed like four or five of these people. Okay. And the reason I went with ex-analysts for anyone wondering why is because I didn't want to talk to a current analyst because they're going to give me the the rosy picture. Mm. Uh, so I wanted to talk to an ex-analyst to understand um, because they're going to be a significantly more honest about what the role is. Ah, that's you know, so interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. So, so I talked to a bunch of ex-analysts, mm-hmm. and after a while, the the initial explanation of what they do uh, was confirmed. Like, yes, that roughly is what they do. Mm-hmm. There are, and but there are also different kinds of analysts. Like, there different the, the different firms work in different ways. Mm-hmm. Some focus much more on paid content. Others focus on uh, consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, some others focus on like just data, mm-hmm. like you're just buying access to raw data. Yeah. So through that, I then now have I now at this point have an idea of what an analyst does, Mm -hmm. and I start building. I take all the stuff that I originally pitched this guy, whittle it down, and reposition it. Okay. Like one of the one of the biggest things, the biggest piece of advice I got from one of these analysts was, uh, you were talking about messaging, like helping someone with messaging. Mm -hmm. That's right. Like you should do that. But don't call it messaging because messaging is what I pay my uh, content contractors for. Right. What you're actually talking about is positioning, and that's what I pay six-figure consultants for. Yeah. He, he says yeah. if you're talking about messaging, you're never going to talk to me. And this guy is a VP of marketing now. Mm-hmm. He says if you're talking about messaging, you're not talking to me. You're talking to a manager three levels below me. Yeah. So like it was a bunch of little tiny stuff like that. Um, so I learned all about this, all about this new industry that I really had no idea about. Yeah, uh, but now I have this services list, and I'm calling myself an industry analyst. And a bunch of vendors are now saying, "Oh, hey, like we want to buy everything you're offering. Like, can I mean, we? Can we do that?"
0: <laughs> this is so wonderful. But
1: I have to ask, and I'm going to play playing
0: devil's advocate on purpose here a little bit. So, sure. you know, things were going great with the consulting. Why Why want something different? Like, why this hunger to, you know, like, why did
1: the idea of being an analyst appeal to you? So the the consultant, technical eh, technical <laughs> consulting yeah. is difficult to sell. Uh, my sell cycles for that work is six to nine months long. Okay. The kinds of companies that buy my my sort of technical consulting are very large companies mm-hmm. uh, with very expensive problems. Like every problem they have is an, is an expensive problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they're in, like one division or one product line may have more revenue than entire companies. Yeah, yeah. So when I when I work with companies like that, I'm trying to get something sold. Uh, it's it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, like not just their own buying cycles, which are also painful, I yeah. realized that I actually book most of my technical consulting revenue in quarter two, mm. in all quarter two. Interesting. So I make all of my revenue in one quarter. Right. Like, that's tough. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, even yeah. even mentally. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to, I wanted to try to solve that problem, but one of the other issues that was actually more annoying to tr- that I was encountering is that when you're selling technical consulting, I'm working with engineers who are coming back to me saying, "Well, why do we need you? I can solve that myself." Right. So there was a lot of ego that I was having to fight through.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So my best customers are basically engineering teams that aren't that mature, mm-hmm. and I'm like, "That's that's great because there's a lot uh, there's a lot that I can do to help them." Right. But if you they're hard to find cuz those companies don't announce themselves like oh hey we have in immature engineering organizations
0: <laughs> right it's not like, not in their uh, yearly uh,
1: year end report for exactly stockholders. Like, that's that's not going to be there <laughs> yeah uh, and you can't exactly announce that like oh i i work best with companies who uh, really need engineering help right uh, because like you because you suck at this one thing like right. this is really annoying for you and you don't know how to do it no one's going to admit that they don't know how to do something Yeah, Like it's kind of core to the engineering identity of if we don't know a thing, we're going to go figure it out. Or that means it's not important here. One of those two things. (laughs) Right. So though I do sell them, I don't sell a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, Rough. I sell roughly four to six engagements a year, which is fine. Like it's plenty of money to uh, having, I've been running my business for three years now. Yeah. So it's good money, but it's just, it's really hard to sell. Okay. So I wanted to come up with a different revenue stream. Okay. So I'm not. I haven't stopped the technical consulting. Um, I still have stuff coming coming my way. I'm still taking those on. I'm still pursuing several of them. But I'm pers- <clears throat> the uh, marketing consulting. The analyst consulting is significantly a. It's much more of where I'm going. Yeah. Like it's, it's a bigger aspect of my business now.
0: Yeah. So if I were to describe this as you have this expertise asset that you've built up over years and you're finding places where it can produce value, it's sort of like, you know, someone who's good at something branches out into training, but but not yeah. that exactly. But it's still like they're taking their expertise and just finding a venue, a new, a new sort of channel where it can create value. Is that a way of thinking of it that resonates? Absolutely. Yeah. One
1: of the interesting things about that is uh, what makes me really interesting to work with for the vendors is that a lot of analysts are, uh, they come from a journalist background mm-hmm. or a developer relations or mm-hmm. developer evangelism background.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I come from a practitioner background. Right. So I actually come from the ranks of their own customers. Right. So when I, when I talk about their products, I'm talking about it from the perspective of someone they would like to sell to, mm-hmm. which makes my opinion much more valuable.
0: You know, incidentally, I can't help but see this as, you know, the market has spoken and Mike has listened. Like it was it was a mark. It was not a uh, like an idea first thing where you're like, I'm going to become an analyst because that's what I want to do when I grow up. But it was, you know interactions with the market that gave you that idea. It wasn't even right. like on your dashboard before that,
1: was it? No, no, I, I had no idea it was even a thing. <laughs> and it was just that, that one happenstance conversation where someone says, this sounds a lot like analyst."
0: So if I can ask, have you thought about why your nose for opportunity is good enough to sniff these things out?
1: Um, have you ever thought about why that is? I think it's just that it I'm, I'm paying a lot more attention to uh how i can be involved uh, and not like what i do for someone mm. like where basically who would be interested in what i have to say who would be interested in my opinion
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what would they get out of it but uh, how i'm approaching it is i'm i kind of set it up for i i don't want to execute i don't want to do a thing for anyone
0: mm-hmm.
1: and once i started doing that once i took that entirely off the table mm-hmm. uh, I'm not, I'm not, there are no deliverables in anything I do. Right. Once I took that off the table, then the world kind of opened up and then I can start to see all these sorts of different ways that I could help someone. Interesting. Why is that? Was that like a
0: constraint that was a sort of forcing function for thinking um, more creatively or
1: why, why do you, why do you think that is? The the problem that I think that a lot of people fall into is when you think about what can I do for someone mm-hmm. You conflate what you know and what you do into the same thing. And that's not true. Okay. So for me, what I know is I'm very good at monitoring. I Mm -hmm. understand how monitoring products work, understand how people use them. Uh, And what I do is I'm very good at implementing monitoring solutions. Mm -hmm. Once I took off the what I do well, now there are at least two different groups that would be, ver- be very interested in what I have to say about the topic of monitoring. Mm-hmm. And it's both people interested in implementing monitoring and people interested in selling monitoring.
0: Mm. That's super interesting. That's, that's a question that I... Like, like if you were coaching a younger version of yourself would you have advised stepping away from implementation work earlier or how would you intentionally cultivate that nose for opportunity?
1: Uh, I think I would, that's a hard one.
0: It is. I know
1: that's a hard one to answer. No
0: softballs here at the
1: end of this podcast. No no softballs. (laughs) Uh, I, I would say that I would not trade my background for anything. Yeah. Maybe you would say, Hey, you just got to pay your dues, buddy. Yeah. Like, there, it there very much is a element of um, chop wood, carry water. Yes, yeah. yeah. Like you just got to do the work, right? And being an implementation specialist, or I mean, not even a specialist. Like I'm a journalist that I'm really good at doing a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fine, and you should embrace that. But you can also cultivate um, a broader understanding of why your work matters. Mm-hmm. So when someone was paying me to implement a monitoring solution, uh, if I'm doing it for like a small e-commerce business that makes 50,000 a year, and then I'm doing it for like a multi-billion dollar company, Mm -hmm. those are two very different reasons why I'm doing this. Yeah, Like the companies get different things out of it. If I'm having a meeting with executives at a multi-billion dollar company, why do they care about what I have to say? What are they getting out of this? And, it's it's going to be different for everyone you're talking to so understanding what you know and how it impacts those asking you about it uh, regardless of what you're actually doing like if i were to continue to implement i would also be paying a lot more attention to what people are asking me mm-hmm. like <laughs> now one of the things i do a lot now is people will ask me questions and before answering the question i'll say that's interesting why why do you ask that yeah like i want to understand the context behind it and I will often challenge people on their questions before I even give them the answer. Huh. Mike, it's almost as if the question that is more important than the answer. <laughs> I, I really think it is. Uh, most most people have – most people's trouble, like – and I, I, I will say this of everyone in the world. Uh, most people have trouble coming up with the question, not the answer. Yeah. If you know what to ask, the answer is the easy part. The, the question is the hard part.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, anytime that um, you're thinking about doing something new, I feel like asking the right questions
1: is, is more important. I mean, I think this is true for a, a business executive or a manager or a 20 year practitioner, mm-hmm. uh, knowing the right question, like, and the question in this situation could be, what is the problem? What is the problem that I'm working on? Mm-hmm. What do I need to solve? Being able to articulate exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it, once you can do that, the answer comes easy Mm. most of the time.
0: That's a great place to wrap things up, even though I'm hungry to talk a little (laughs) more, but um, this has been great, Mike. Where should folks go to contact you, find out more? um see, see
1: um observe from the peanut gallery your transition to industry analyst <laughs> yeah so you can find me at monitoring dot love yes that is a tld yeah nice so you can uh, find the newsletter there as well as all my contact information and i'm also on mike underscore jillian on twitter so you're the rare
0: um, technology-focused newsletter on the t- on the love TLD, which is
1: full of what dating sites? What other kinds <laughs> I, of businesses? I issues? imagine. So, <laughs> uh, it's yeah. I the monitoring love is the TLD is actually because of a um, hashtag in the monitoring world called monitoring love. Nice. Like it's ha- hashtag monitoring love. That's so
0: cool, Mike. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank here. you.
1: It's been a pleasure.